Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If any wish to require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Candace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Life with Cancer, A Guide to Betting the Best Care. And today's program is part one of this series, and today's program is titled Trends in Oncology and Treatment Planning, What You Need to Know. So we're going to start off with you really learning about the trends in oncology and treatment planning. Uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have uh, many participants on the call today, and although you can't see each other, there are 522 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Japan and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call, actually. And really, it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, today's activity is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Takeda Oncology, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program, of this entire series, actually, um, this five-part series. But also, I want to thank them for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on today's program. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is a clinical professor of medicine and medical oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director, Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, and she's immediate past president, National Medical Association. Dr. Mitchell also is on the Blue Ribbon panel of the Moonshot Initiative, uh, started by President Obama, and um, actually she really comes with that background as well. And Dr. Mitchell is going to be addressing understanding your cancer diagnosis and treatment options, clinical trial opportunities, and the role of advocacy, self-advocacy in your oncology care. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Mitchell. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It is my privilege to be here with you today and to join with this uh, remarkable panel of experts. I'd also like to thank the patients and the advocates who have called in today uh, to join with us. So understanding your cancer diagnosis and treatment options is really a very important uh, entity. Once there is a cancer diagnosis, it's also important to know the clinical trial opportunities and where to gain information. Uh, so let's start with the primary tumor. The primary tumor and its location are very, very important, and this is information that should be given to the patient by the treatment team. Uh, the location of the tumor, whether in the colon or the breast or lung, uh, very important. And this is a question that every patient who is undergoing or who is contemplating undergoing tumor treatment uh, should know. There are other components of the diagnosis uh, that may be listed in the pathology report. Uh, and the patient always should have a copy of the pathology report uh, that describes the tumor uh, that treatment will be designed for. And the questions that patients can ask, for example, is the tumor well-differentiated or poorly differentiated? Um, these help determine the uh, treatment options for the patient. And you can also ask other questions that are related to uh, the tumor characteristics, such as markers and any special characteristics of the tumor. For example, uh, for breast cancer, it would be important to know um, the answers to uh, whether the receptors on the breast cancer are positive or negative, and those receptors 
such as estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, or HER2 receptors. Uh, in colon cancer, for example, uh, one might want to know and should know the answers to whether MSI or other markers such as KRAS or BRAF are present. So always ask the treatment team uh, this information if it is not given. Uh, the patient would also want to know what is the standard treatment uh, for this stage of tumor and therefore the staging very important. Staging is frequently listed as stage one or stage two or stage three, stages three or four. So asking the staging of the tumor uh, and that is whether any evidence of spread of tumor from the primary site, such as lymph nodes or um, other organ metastases. These are questions that one could ask and one should uh, know the answers to, and therefore know the standard treatment for each stage of the disease and the standard treatment that might be recommended for you. Clinical trials are very, very important because this is how information regarding uh, characteristics of the tumor and its treatment are found, and that's how we have learned to give the best treatment. So clinical trials, uh, patients always ask where can they get information on clinical trials, and I think you should always start with your treating physician and the treatment team uh, but a good website uh, is clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, I caution you about simple Googling of the name of the tumor to find information because on, the, on various websites there can be uh, poor information or misinformation or the wrong information. So I caution you about using multiple websites. Uh, other areas that I think are very important for gaining information, and that is regarding the National Cancer Institute's designated uh, cancer centers. There are 69 cancer centers in the United States, as well as their networks, and consequently, a lot of information available. There's also the National Cancer Institute. Uh, cooperative groups with um, networks and offices in many locations and in most states throughout the United States. So there are a number of ways that one can get clinical trials information, uh, but I do recommend starting with your treating physician and the physician team and uh, going from there uh, in search of clinical trials. Uh, it is very important uh, to have someone share information with you in terms of office visits and listening and helping you collect information. Uh, this person could be a family member, a friend. Uh, some patients do this themselves, but make sure you collect information and keep it in an organized manner. Uh, questions that you might want to ask the team uh, regarding treatment planning is what is the cost of the treatment? Is it covered by insurance? What if my insurance does not cover uh, the recommended treatment? Uh, and questions regarding payment of the um, uh, payment for the therapy. Uh, you will also want to know how frequent are the visits that are required for this treatment. Do you need to be off from work? What is the duration of treatment on a given day? Uh, some people will need to pick up kids from school uh, while they're getting treatment. So you'll want to know, do you need to be in the treatment center one hour or 10 hours? So questions like that. Uh, you might also ask about nutrition during treatment or symptom management. Uh, does this treatment um, heavily impact the usual 
business day or how will you feel during the cancer treatment. Um, You might also want to know, does this hospital or treatment center have a special buddy system? Someone else who has perhaps gone through treatment for this particular disease uh, and therefore uh, understanding and talking to someone else who has possibly undergone uh, similar are the same treatments. Uh, and then toward um, the end of the information gathering, you will want to know uh, what happens after treatment. Is there a survivorship plan? And uh, is a treatment plan summary given to the patient? Or is it sent to my other doctors? For example, uh, your primary care physician or other uh, physicians that you um, may have. So there is a lot of information for patients regarding, one, the diagnosis of cancer and treatment options, but also clinical trials opportunities, uh, survivorship planning, and I think cost is a very important part of cancer care and especially knowing uh, the coverage of your insurance or other uh, health care payment plan. So understanding the diagnosis, understanding the treatment and how involved is the treatment and what resources are available in the cancer center or hospital or treatment uh, uh, locality. So Uh, With that, Dr. Mesner, I thank you so much for this opportunity, and uh, I thank the patients for being here with us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. That was really outstanding and really set the pace for the entire program today. So thank you so much for doing that. And um, and our next speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford School of Medicine, Director, Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. Dr. Shapiro is going to address factors that may affect treatment planning, how your healthcare team may help you address these factors, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Shapiro. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you, and uh, um, it's a um, challenge to follow Dr. Mitchell, who's always so clear and uh, has done such a beautiful job of mapping out our conversation. So what I'm asked to do is to talk with you and think with you about how we can plan for a crisis. And in many ways, a crisis is always full of unexpected challenges. So I can't guide you through absolutely every aspect of this, but what I hope to do with you over the next few minutes is just to show you a way of thinking about it that can perhaps allow you to feel that you have some control over it, that you feel more confident and prepared, and to actually help you to ask the questions that are important to you when you are with the professionals and your cancer team, your nurses, your doctors, your therapists, and social workers. One of the things that I have learned over the years is that at times when one feels very anxious, for instance, when we're talking about a diagnosis of cancer or trying to make sense of how it's going to impact on our future, sometimes we're not quite able to think at our best. We're not really strategic thinkers when we feel anxious. So that is also why it's important to prepare to think about it, to have access to good information, and to to feel that you're accompanied. So taking somebody with you, as Dr. Mitchell just said, serves a very important function of allowing you to feel more relaxed, um, allowing somebody else who knows you to ask questions on your behalf, and then to go over what was said and debrief with you. Think about the long haul. Sometimes when we're in a crisis mode, we're just thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next week or the next month. But ask some questions and begin to think about how this experience and your choices are going to impact you, not just a week or a month down the line, but a year or two, and what the impact is going to be on those that are very important to you, usually your family members. So some of the factors 
that may affect treatment planning, both on your end and also on the clinical team's end, is your general state of health. If you have other illnesses, it's important to bring those to the table. It's perhaps very important to involve a primary care physician or somebody who really knows you. It's important to think about what you really want and what matters to you. What gives? What do you think is most important in assembling a team, in choosing where you're going to be treated? There may be matters of convenience. There may be a clinical center or an office that's close to you, and that may be incredibly important, but perhaps you may be sacrificing something in terms of expertise. So you need to line things up, and that may depend on what resources you have, what kind of cancer you have. For those who have a very rare cancer or need a very complex treatment, it's really, really important to ask about the experience of the clinicians you are seeing in treating that disease. Because we know that being an expert and having a lot of experience often leads to better results and outcomes. So in thinking about factors that may affect treatment and the planning of treatment, think about some of the things that Dr. Mitchell already mentioned. How important is it to you to have access to innovation, perhaps to have access to a new treatment through a trial? Or how important is it for you to be close to home when you're being treated? Who, who is going to be putting together your treatment team? And who is in that treatment team? You need to find a point person perhaps to discuss some financial concerns and perhaps somebody else who may be able to give you the information you need and point you to good um, resources for information. You need to feel that you have a good rapport with the people who are going to be your partners in treating this cancer. And then one of the other um, issues I would ask you to think about is if you need to be hospitalized, where will that be? So putting together all of these ideas, you know, how important is innovation, experience, developing good rapport, having a team, having different people in the care team that you know are the point people to go to with different concerns, perhaps a nurse, a social worker, a financial counselor, in addition to your oncologist, and having access. And also, as you're thinking about your treatment, who's going to be there in, in, in your home team to help you with transportation? It's possible that you may not be able to drive yourself to and from treatment, sometimes medications are given that may not allow you to drive. How often will you need to be there? Who will look after the kids when you're not available? And what's going to happen to your job? So these are all the kinds of things that people often think about. And let me just say them in a different way as a way of helping you perhaps compile a list of things that are important to you that you may want to bring up with your clinicians or with family members. It's important to be organized, and sometimes that means having a list of priorities and then rank ordering them to, so that you know what comes to the top of that list for you. Finding an orderly way of asking questions about treatment choices or what's involved, as Dr. Mitchell said, if there are choices, perhaps um, you wish to go less often to be treated, if you're told that there are two treatments that will give you the same results, you may ask, you know, um, if there is a recommendation for you, and if not, perhaps you can choose based on what's most convenient for you and your family. It's important to know and to ask how your treatment is going to affect your ability to work, to care for kids, to do the things that matter most to you. So think about and ask questions about how long you need to be treated for, and then how long you might have side effects for and what those are likely to be. Voicing concerns about financial resources is important. If you are worried about how you're going to pay for a test or a medication, the sooner you say that, the better. Perhaps there are choices. Perhaps at times it's possible to have similar outcomes with two medications that are very different in cost. So it, it's important to say this out loud and to have people on the team who can help you problem solve. I've often said to patients that even the best doctors are not good mind readers. So it's important to be very explicit, to talk about what is important to you, to have a list of concerns, 
to rank order those concerns, and to think about how the time you're going to invest in cancer treatment and also what the treatments are going to do to you may affect the way you think about your choices, and that may determine where you choose to go, who you choose to be your doctor and nurse in as partners in your treatment, and how much you are willing to invest of your time and your resources in the cancer treatments. And that brings us to the very real issue of how uh, the cancer and how the treatment affect quality of life. Um, doctors and nurses now have become much better at talking about quality of life and thinking about this along the entire illness trajectory. So it's important to think about the symptoms you're going to experience as a result of the treatment itself. Sometimes it's hard for family members, for instance, to tell apart, to tease apart what is hurting you the most, whether it's the cancer itself or the treatment you're getting for cancer. So it's important to ask when you're presented with treatment choices, assuming there are choices that need to be made, how that is going to impact on other areas of your life. We all know and anticipate that there may be physical symptoms such as nausea, itchiness, fatigue, and hair loss. Perhaps there are things that can be done, so it's important to ask that. But there also may be emotional symptoms, feeling worried or guilty, scared, feeling indecisive, unable to make a decision, feeling angry or sad, frustrated or confused. Important to have a vocabulary and to talk about these things as well. And then the area, of course, of social support. How will the cancer treatment impact on my ability to go to work, to look after my family, to maintain my presence in the community. For many, the issue of being able to work is tied also with financial security or with career ambitions, so it's really important to ask. And finally, how will the cancer or the treatment for cancer impact who you are and how you view your future, not just immediately, but over the long haul? So my advice in this very wordy um, segment is this. Um, be prepared, organize, build a team that supports you, and think of your clinicians, your doctors, nurses, therapists, social workers as your partners in this. This is a job that you need to do together. Stay as hopeful and focused as you possibly can. And then think of this not as a sprint, but as a marathon with mile markers and um, celebrate every time you reach one of these uh, mile markers. So prepare yourself for an unexpected journey, find help, and then learn to recognize some of those moments that may be beautiful and that people you don't know perhaps reach out to you and wish you well. There's those moments where sometimes we learn to appreciate that what this really is about is having a chance to continue to live the life that matters to us and that we've crafted for ourselves. So with that, I'll turn it right over to Dr. Mesner. Thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro. That was really outstanding as well, very eloquent, and lots of wonderful thoughts for people to think about in terms of really dealing and coping with um, their, um, their cancer and, and, and things to be aware of throughout this course. Lots of uh, very interesting and helpful points for everybody. And our next speaker is Dr. Charles Laprinzi. Dr. Laprinzi is the Regis Professor of Breast Cancer Research, Division of Medical Oncology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Laprinzi is going to address participating decisions about your treatment plans and side effect prevention and management, which is really quite a new, new trend. So I, really, I think you'll all be interested to hear Dr. Laprinzi on these issues. Dr. Laprinzi. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be here again and to follow Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Shapira. So participating in decisions about your treatment plans is the first thing I was asked to discuss. And in the olden days, uh, doctors were fairly paternalistic, and, and which we maybe should say also maternalistic, but back in those days, doctors were mostly, mostly men, uh, which is not, certainly not the case today, which is good. Uh, but the doctor decided what to do, and they told the patient, and the patient just did that. Uh, over time, things have changed, appropriately things have changed, and, and it's been determined that patient input is quite important in this process. Now, some physicians go to the point where they say, you know, I'm going to lay out things and the patient has to decide what to do. Uh, and 
Uh, one story that comes up about that was a manuscript published in a section of the Journal of Clinical Oncology called The Art of Oncology, which I happened to be the editor for the first 10 years, but now it's a, there's a much better editor because that's now Dr. Lydia Shapiro, Lydia Shapiro that you just heard from. And there was a piece that was written called On the Horns of a Dilemma, and it was a story from a physician about a patient who had a breast cancer and had an advanced breast cancer and had come back. Unfortunately, the goals at that time were not for cure, but were to try to help the patient do as well as possible for as long as possible. And by that, I define for my patients that those things, there are four items to that. The patient, we want the patient to have the fewest side effects as possible from the cancer for as long as possible, the fewest side effects as possible from the treatment, the longest life, and the best quality of life. But uh, the patient, uh, then the doctor and the patient decided to try some chemotherapy, and a couple of months later, it really didn't work. Uh, and then they tried a different type of chemotherapy, and it really didn't work. And then the patient came back, and this, the, the doctor talked to the patient about this third type of chemotherapy and was very honest with the patient. There's pros and cons and cons and pros and this and that, and, and asked the patient what they wanted to do. And the patient said, well, I really can't decide. And he said, well, that's fine and dandy. Come back in a few weeks, and we can talk about it again. And so the patient came back, and she still said, oh, I can't decide what to do. And he said, come back in a couple of weeks. And he came back again, and the patient still couldn't decide. And then the doctor said, you know, not to decide is to decide, which just so happens to be the saying that was on a poster when I was in high school, back in college, um, and and then went on to, to go on to write more about their, their, their situation here. Um, and I actually, we, the paper was accepted, but a little editorial was written basically to say, in that situation, it shouldn't be totally put on the patient. The doctor needs to, to help and provide advice. The doctor does have influence there. So it really turns into what is a shared decision-making process. And I'll go through a little bit the way I see this. And that is that I lay out the options, uh, as I would in my mind as I'm thinking about things, talking about the pros and the cons and the toxicities and, uh, and the benefits and all those sorts of things. Um, there are some situations where the answer is relatively clear-cut in my mind, and others where there are close calls. It might help a little bit, but also has side effects and that sort of thing. I then want to listen to the patient and watch the patient during that situation. There are sometimes, even on the close calls, where the, answer, the patient's giving me the answer before I even ask. They say, when can we get started? Or, no way, doc, I don't want to do that. I'd rather spend time with family. Um, there are other times when the patient is a bit more glassy-eyed and unsure, deer in headlights, which is very un understandable because all of this new information is coming in, and I'd be in the same situation if I was not, uh, if I was in a different area. Um, and where in that situation, I tried to provide input and talked about the pros and cons. If the patient can't decide at that time, then I help with making a decision. I say, my gut would be to do this sort of therapy unless you really, really don't want to. The other option sometimes being my gut would be not to go with this unless you really, really do want to, which gives a recommendation but also allows the patient to be able to, to provide input in there, and we can always change, change our mind, and I'm always right in that situation because the patient really, really didn't want to. Even though I recommended it, that's what we decide to go with, which is what I had recommended. Um, asking questions, let me comment a little bit about that. That's good, and uh, both Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Shapira mentioned that. My own recommendation is that to first probably let the doctor lay out the plan when they're starting to talk about treatment plans and thoughts because it might take me five, seven minutes to lay out the pros and cons of different things there, jot questions down, and then because the doctor may well answer a number of your questions, and if you start asking questions early on, the doctor gets off the off the track for trying to get you the the right recommendation and the light the right story for helping to make a decision in that process. Um, let me make one other comment too. In terms of websites to go to, another one, and I don't think Dr. Mitchell mentioned this one is Cancer.net, which is a wonderful website. Actually, Lydia, Dr. Shapira is the leader of that particular process right now, uh, but that's a great, great place to go to. So let me switch now to talk a little bit about uh, side effect uh, prevention and management, and that's something that I could go on for, for hours because that's one of my areas of research interest, and there are a lot of side effects. There are hot flashes. There are uh, sexual troubles, vaginal symptoms, mouth sores, uh, appetite loss, uh, diarrhea, skin troubles, nausea and vomiting, all sorts of things along that line. And a number of things that uh, we've been able to come up with uh, for trying to, to
to prevent some of these problems and or to try to treat some of these problems. Another one of these problems is chemotherapy neuropathy, which is a very common problem, if you will. So what I want to do is just briefly mention one, one of the newer things that has come up here that can come into play, and that is with nausea and vomiting related to chemotherapy. A lot of the chemotherapy drugs we give cause nausea and vomiting. Not all of them do. We kind of rate each chemotherapy drug in terms of chemotherapy drug or chemotherapy regimen, which might be a few drugs, in terms of whether there's a low chance of causing nausea and vomiting, an intermediate chance, or a very high chance of causing nausea and vomiting, especially if you do not give any uh, medication to try to prevent that. So for patients who are getting highly emetogenic chemotherapy, which is emetogenic means vomiting, uh, and so HEC is what we call that for highly emetogenic chemotherapy. So drugs such as cisplatin or adriamycin mixed with cyclophosphamide are common highly emetogenic chemotherapy drugs. We oftentimes give, over the years, have given three different medications. Uh, one is a corticosteroid medication, dexamethasone. Another one, and there are two other ones called 5-HT3 receptor antagonists, such as ondansetron or palonosetron and then NK1 receptor antagonists such as fosoprepitent or prepitent um, medications. And those uh, improve, the, uh, the ch decrease the chance of nausea and vomiting related to the chemotherapy. Uh, some of those medications, the last two I mentioned, can be hundreds of dollars, uh, some of, the, of them can be hundreds of dollars per dose uh, that is given. Uh, there's another medication, an older medication called olanzapine, the brand name is Zyprexa, uh, which a recent trial was published that, that actually looked at adding that to the standard three-drug regimen for trying to prevent nausea and vomiting for patients getting highly emetogenic chemotherapy. Uh, and so that medication was added, or a placebo, a medication that looked the same uh, but was just sugar pill, if you will. And that uh, study, when finally uh, published uh, this last summer, showed that it improved the chance of the patient not having any nausea for five days because they follow the patient for five days, so no nausea at all in any of those five days, it improved it by about 15 to 20 percentage points, which is a pretty big uh, jump in the right direction there. And it also improved the chance of a what we call a complete response, which means no vomiting and no need for extra rescue medications of nausea, for nausea or vomiting. Uh, and it improved that by about 20 percentage points. One of the downsides of that medication is it does cause some sedation. It's actually an antipsychotic medication, and when you give it for long periods of time, it can cause weight loss or weight gain and metabolic troubles like diabetes if people gain a lot of weight. But this situation is only given for four days, and that's not a problem there. But it does cause some sedation. The patient's a little bit more sleepy uh, during the day when they would like not to be. Um, it's not a big problem for everybody, but for some patients, it's there. It's relatively cheap, less than $15 for the four doses, which is quite cheap compared to the other uh, nausea and vomiting medications. So uh, it's an option for doctors to add this on to the other medications to try to help prevent nausea and vomiting, or the other option is to provide a prescription for this medication, and if the patient develops any nausea or vomiting, then they can try to take the medication after that because it also helps to prevent the problem once it actually gets started. So let me stop at that point in time so there's time for questions at the end. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lipinzi, and such excellent information. And I, I think it's a new world that we talk about uh, being able to prevent uh, some of these side effects, which is so important. So thank you. Um, thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. And Dr. Palos is really your whole healthcare team. She's an, a nurse, a social worker, and a doctor of public health. And Dr. Dr. Palos is going to be addressing, and I'll actually tell you a little bit about Dr. Palos. <laughs> in addition to that, Dr. Palos is Clinical Research Manager, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to address culturally diverse populations, shared decision-making across cultures, and patient and family-centered care. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Palos. Good afternoon to all participating in this call today, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for your kind introduction. I have been asked to speak about the impact of culture on shared decision-making and the delivery of patient-centered care. Our previous speakers, Drs. Mitchell, Shapira, and Dr. Leprinsky, discussed the experiences and the challenges patients and their families face when making decisions about their treatment. 
There were three common themes mentioned by all speakers. The importance of communication between the patient, the family, and the healthcare team. The need to have shared decision-making so the most appropriate goals for the patient could be attained. And the need to provide patient-centered care that is based on the individual patient's preferences, needs, and values. Yet there's another factor that affects this triad. Um, that is the triad of communication, decision-making, and patient-centered care. That factor relates to the differences between a patient and provider's interpretation and explanation of cancer of a, as a disease, its symptoms, and its treatment. Whenever a patient and provider interact in a clinical encounter, their communication is based on the worldviews formed through their own life experiences, professional training if it's a healthcare provider, and every, everyone's own individual cultural values and beliefs. Culture drives communication across the cancer experience when it comes to decision-making. It can be said that, cult that cancer is a cultural event. And I want to remind folks that culture includes more than just race or ethnicity. It includes age. There's the culture of age, geographic region, the culture of urban, rural, and suburbs, and sexual and gender identity. Culture also includes views and attitudes of the different professions that are represented by our healthcare teams who are caring for the patient. So culture shapes the reality of a person's life, particularly during times of crisis, such as what occurs when one is diagnosed with cancer. Thus, it seems logical to understand how cultural symptoms shape a person's expectations for patient, provider, and family communication about cancer care. However, this area is often overlooked. We're so busy thinking about all the other complex things that we just heard our three wonderful speakers talk about that culture just kind of gets lost or hidden. It's there. It's like the elephant in the room. It, we know it affects the communication, the decision-making, and the care that we're going to deliver, but we don't always take the time to really think about how we can deal with it. So there are four really or different reasons to understand culture and engage in culturally competent communication about cancer care. First, we know the United States is undergoing tremendous demographic shifts that will impact communication and decision-making related to cancer treatment. One of those most important shifts includes an increase in the globalization of the diversity of America's population, which calls for a need to tailor communication to the person's needs. Second, patients and families often report illness and symptoms that do not fit into biomedical textbook explanations. The concepts of risk and suffering are examples of terms that can be a source of confusion in a patient-provider discussion. There, there is published evidence suggesting patient-provider communication significantly impacts medical care and treatment outcomes. When barriers to communication exist, it increases the likelihood that a patient will not complete or return for their treatment. Let me give an example of how cultural clashes may occur during a clinical encounter. In our country, our healthcare system is based on a Western biomedical model, which values individualism, self-determination, and open disclosure. These values are at times incongruent with family-centered values who value collectivism, family decision-making, and mutual trust based on respect. To achieve optimal intercultural communication about cancer and its treatments, providers must take time to learn about a patient's cultural values. So what steps can be taken um, to help make appropriate decisions? Well, let me first focus on the patients and the family members. It is important to discuss your preferences for communication with the healthcare team. As Dr. Leprinzi mentioned, patients need to give their input. It's important to let the team know what a, um, the patient's preferences are for communicating in terms of language, learning, for example, that they prefer learning through reading something, hearing it, seeing it, or even teching it with all the new wonderful uh, social media um, methods that we have. Second, it's important to have the patient inform the team who in the family will be the facilitator of communication. As Dr. Mitchell mentioned, it's not always the husband, child, or sibling. In some cultures, it can be a member of the extended family or someone who is the most educated or speaks and understands English the best. Third, you can ask for family conferences, or even which includes interprofessional meetings. This is becoming standard practice, and most healthcare teams are willing to do so if arrangements and schedules are planned. Family conferences or these types of meetings 
are also excellent opportunities to arrange a meeting with financial counselors to assess costs associated with your treatment. Fourth, it's important to stay away from the yay-yaying syndrome. That means that uh, you give the impression that there's complete agreement with what the provider is recommending for treatment. That can be done non-verbally, such as nodding our heads in agreement, or verbally saying, okay, 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 whatever you think is best. Clearly state what your preferences are and ask questions. In short, practice self-advocacy, as we heard our other speakers um, state. There are also steps healthcare providers can use to achieve shared decision-making. First, it's important to communicate in a manner consistent with the language, educational needs, and goals of the patient. Second, rather than beginning the conversation by asking what is the matter or why are you here, shift the focus by asking what matters most to you as the patient, what are, your, what are the patient's goals, what are the realistic goals, and what can be achieved as goals. Third, healthcare professionals can, must remember to provide unbiased information so patients and their families will decide on treatment options that fit into their own personal needs and values. And Dr. LaPrincy gave a, a good discussion on how um, having unbiased information is so important to our patients. And last, visits for treatment planning can close with return demonstrations, or I think Dr. Shapiro called them debriefing. Ask the patient or family to summarize their understanding of what was discussed, which treatment options were decided upon, and what are the next steps. It is critical to foster mutual trust, respect, and open communication during any patient-provider encounter. One of the things that patients always come up with is, I don't want to, um, you know, I know the doctor's so busy. I don't want to impact their time. Um, I've, I'm nervous about, you know, taking up too much of their time. It's, all, it's important for you to feel that trust and to feel comfortable enough to, keep at, to ask those questions. But if you come prepared and follow some of the tips that were given by our providers, it will help you in facilitating a good conversation or discussion with your provider. Com cancer is a complex and unpredictable disease. Shared decision-making, patient-centered care, and intercultural communication will shift across the, the, the cancer trajectory. Even so, patient and family-centered care, care is feasible in our clinical encounters and can be integrated to achieve shared decision-making. These are all suitable and adequate ways to help patients and their families make clearer decisions about the cancer treatment and its management. Thank you, Dr. Messner. This now concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was outstanding. Thank you so much and really contributes a lot to the call today um, for us all to think about that and these very important issues for everyone to be aware of. And our next speaker, who's our last speaker, but hardly our least speaker, our most important speaker, actually, is Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and she's a program coordinator here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Kelly is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Kelly, my dear colleague and friend at Cancer Care. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner said, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and I work with many people who are diagnosed and their loved ones, helping them navigate some of this and getting through it. We've been talking today about really managing your care, and at the end of the day, it's really about your quality of life. And I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of that network. So a little about us, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York and provide over the phone nationally and online both nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We provide practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system. We do also provide some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. And as I said before, they're completely free of charge. An oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so how it affects the person and their support network. 
we're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the, uh, the disease. So financial demands, physical changes, uh, social adjustment, and overall psychological impact in care. And really adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process. And I actually consider it to be an important part of treatment. You know, as you know, cancer affects the whole person. And it also affects the entire family and friends support network. Asking for help, um, talking about this by either joining a support group or contacting a social worker uh, can be so helpful and is a sign of strength. You know, Dr. Shapira said earlier, she was talking about the emotional symptoms and, and being able to talk about that. It's incredibly important. And I want you to know you don't have to do this alone. In joining a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling really provides a space that's just yours uh, to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. You know, if you're feeling well emotionally, it can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment itself. So at this time, we are offering all of the services I mentioned earlier. If you're interested in any of our services, call us. You can reach us on our HOPE line, and that's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. You can also visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive. You're going to find a lot of information, not only on support, but also on all of the rest of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment and ways of coping as you go through this. You know, we've learned a lot from today's program. There's been such a lot of great information um, to digest and get your arms around. Just know we're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. And lastly, remember, you're not alone in this. You do not have to walk the path alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you, Ms. Kelly. That was outstanding. Thank you, Sarah. That was just wonderful and a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. Now I'm going to um, ask um, uh, our, uh, Candace to bring all of our speakers on board, and I'm going to um, also ask Candace to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, we have time for questions, and indeed, if we don't get to your question, then we will give you resources to get your questions answered. How's that? But let's see how many questions we can take right now. So, Candace, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up. We have some people queuing up already who know how to do that, but nevertheless, if you would just give the directions to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, to ask a question at this time, please press star 1. And we have a question from one of our online participants, um, actually um, for Dr. LaPrinzi. Um, so uh, Dr. LaPrinzi, this is a question for you. Um, my 37-year-old stepson this week is starting a nine-week course of chemo for seminoma. I did not recognize all of the drugs you discussed for HEC, and I did not see them on the list of meds that my stepson will be using. Is there a way for me to see a written list of those drugs which you discussed? So if you could address that question, Dr. Prinzi, perhaps even repeating some of them or helping with that, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, so seminoma is a type of testicular cancer, uh, and usually that's treated with cisplatin, uh, and that's a drug that does cause a lot of trouble with nausea and vomiting, one of the worst of the single-agent drugs that we give. Um, I'm almost readily assured that the patient that the patient would be receiving dexamethasone and and uh, the other two medications, the 5-HT3 receptor antagonist and the NK1 receptor antagonist. It's almost I would say with 98% certainty that he's, that he's receiving that. The olanzapine, O-L-A-N-Z-A-P-I-N-E, is the other drug. Olanzapine, uh, Zyprexa, Z-Y-P-R-E-X-A, is the other newer medication. It's actually an old medication, but it's a newly described medication. And if the patient uh, had trouble with nausea or vomiting, uh, and the patient's already had chemotherapy, then mentioning that to the to the doctor, um, and uh, and and uh, th that would be a reasonable thing to do, and see about adding that drug on it. 
Excellent. Thank you. And I just want to say to all of you, actually, that you know, after the call ends, within a day, it's up as a, um, uh, as a podcast on our website, on the Cancer Care website, www.cancercare.org backslash podcasts. And so that some of you may have, you know, there was a lot covered today, as, as Ms. Kelly said, a lot to wrap your hands around. And so you can listen to the program again and listen to it with other family members as well who might not have been on the call. And that might help also with just getting all that information that you really want to hold on to. So um, just a reminder about that. And um, so we have a question in front of our online participants. One more question for Dr. Pimsey. Are there any new current medications that assist with neuropathy? So neuropathy. Now now you're trying to get me to talk for two hours because that's one of my major research interests in symptom control. So um, the, uh, the one medication that's been established as being useful for established neuropathy, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, numbness and tingling and shooting, burning pains, usually in the hands and feet most prominently, uh, is called duloxetine or Cymbalta. Uh, and that drug is the one that in all of the studies we've done has been shown to be helpful. Having said that, it's not very helpful. The patient started with 6 out of 10 pain. Uh, before they, the medication, half of them got placebo, half of them got the duloxetine. The people who got placebo at the end of their treatment period, which was a couple of months, it dropped from 6 out of 10 pain down to 5 out of 10, so not much of a drop and something like you'd expect with the placebo effect. The duloxetine dropped to 4 out of 10, so it was a statistically significant difference, but not a very large one. So that's the best of the drugs that are out there. None of the other drugs have been shown, have been proven to be beneficial. The ones that are used a lot, gabapentinoids, I call them, gabapentin or pregabalin, neurontin or uh, um, uh, pregabalin is uh, Lyrica, Lyrica uh, medication. They're they're commonly used because they're useful for diabetes, and you'll see it, you've seen it on TV for diabetic neuropathy. But the studies are not very good at all. And and the one study done with one of those medications, which is one that our group conducted, suggested it was not very helpful for that. So those are what what you have. There's some information that exercise may be helpful. Um, uh, there's, um, there is something called scrambler therapy, which is an investigational thing which I'm involved with and a couple of others involved with, seem to help some patients with neuropathy. We haven't proven it yet, but that's something that could be found on the, on the web. Uh, and if a person's willing to try something, it's, it can be clinically available at a few different places, scrambler therapy, S-C-R-A-M-B-L-E-R. And I'll stop there. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dr. Lipinski. And um, I have a question actually for both uh, so Dr. Um, Shapira and uh, Dr. Palos, um, and it's about survivorship uh, clinics. So two of your speakers today are affiliated with Departments of Cancer Survivorship. Is that a new type of department in medical care? P- uh, please briefly discuss. So um, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Shapira, do you want to go first, and then Dr. Um, Palos second, and just to discuss the, the, the Department of uh, of cancer survivorship in each of your institutions, but you both actually have tremendous impact on so. Thank you. Um, so thank you. So uh, thank you for the question too. So survivorship is now recognized as a phase of cancer of the cancer journey, and survivorship technically starts when you hear the words you have cancer or when somebody is first diagnosed with cancer and extends forever on. <laughs> So into periods with treatment, without treatment, with uh, so it's basically it's something that goes on. And for some people, you know, the, the, there is a very hopefully a very great path forward. And for others, it may include periods of treatment, periods of, you know, uh, fearing there may be a cancer recurrence. So all of that is called survivorship. So anything that starts with diagnosis, through treatment, and beyond. That's a, that's a definition I think we can all agree on. How the care is delivered depends a lot on the practice, on the institution. Um, so there is no specific survivorship model. That said, survivorship care means that we believe also that patients need to be well-informed. So what was mentioned earlier is the need to have a summary, a care plan, and some mechanism really for coordinating care, both during and beyond cancer treatment with all the other physicians or clinicians who are involved in a patient's care, including a family physician or a primary care physician for adults. 
Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Palos, did you want to comment as well? So, so certainly. Let me just follow up, uh, um, Dr. Shapiro's, and then also thank the person for asking that question about survivorship care. Um, survivorship care is really increasing, and it seems like it's becoming the new subspecialty. It's where cancer prevention was like 20, 30 years ago. There is a difference, though, in the definition of survivorship care, depending on how, uh, what setting you are using it on. The NCI and some of the other groups use the definition that Dr. Shapiro put out about it starting at the beginning and then continuing on. But when we're talking about delivery of care in survivorship clinics, such as in our clinics here, what we're, we have eligibility criteria for each of our survivors depending on what specific type of cancer they may have. And some of that would include how many years they've gone uh, past their final treatment, that curative treatment that they received. It would also be based on um, how many years they have of no evidence of disease. So they're very specific, and those algorithms for um, the eligibility and some of the other care are available on the website. You can just Google uh, MD Anderson algorithms. The thing that's really interesting and very um, helpful about survivorship care is that when you come to the clinics, um, the care that you're getting is very specialized. It not only includes surveillance, which most um, survivors will receive when they um, go for regular follow-up, but it also includes talking about um, screening, health risk, health risk uh, reduction, health promotion, talks about the late effects that uh, we heard about from Dr. Leprinsky that can continue um, after the treatment has um, stopped. So it's a very specialized, systematic way of looking at the whole um, experience of survivorship, and it follows the Institute of Medicine's um, domains, and you can also uh, go on the website and, and look at Institute of Medicine um, um, survivorship. So I, I believe that we're seeing more of that. There's a very much of an increased interest because of regulations that are coming about that everyone should receive a survivorship care plan. There's treatment summaries that or a summary of everything um, that the patient has gone through. So when you visit your physicians, whether it be your primary care physician, your oncologist, you might ask some questions and ask what their views are about that. We are now working more with uh, community docs to uh, let them become more aware of survivorship care plans, treatment summaries, and what the concept of survivorship is. So uh, keep your, you know, there's lots of information on there. Just be careful about what you Google and you, when you Google what you read. But it's an exciting area. Thank you. And actually, Ms. Kelly, do you want to comment on the survivorship support groups that we have here at Cancer Care and just the services that we offer both in groups and individually as well? Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's a really important thing um, to, A, have a survivorship care plan, but also be able to provide support in terms of survivorship. I think often patients, you know, the treatment may have ended, and yet they're still feeling the effects of it. So being able to have a space to talk about it is important, and also with their medical team to be able to know that the team is still there and they're still cared for and, they're, you know, that there's a set plan for them so they don't feel like they've been through all of this and then all of a sudden are just left out there. Um, so all of those things are important. And we have groups that uh, for post-treatment that are online. And uh, also we're going to be starting soon a face-to-face. -face. Excellent. Thank you. And we have one last late-breaking question, an important one, an important one particularly in this era now. And this question I'm going to ask if Dr. Shapiro would start with it, but I'm probably going to ask then Dr. Palos and actually um, Ms. Kelly also to comment on this. It's an important issue. Um, and so the question is, I have some clients who don't have their family or relatives and mild cognitive impairment. This is a call coming from one of our international participants on the call, but it is relevant to everybody on the call. If they are diagnosed with cancer, how healthcare professionals help them decide treatment planning? So, Dr. Shapiro, could you start with this one? Because sure. So this this is not the kind of question that one can answer quickly, and it's a, it shows the incredible complexity and the richness of really providing care in real time. So I thank the caller for that question. In fact, <clears throat> at a meeting in June um, coming up at the Multinational Association of Supportive Care and Cancer, we're going to have a workshop that is going to address exactly this because it is – a matter of concern with or without family members, the idea that uh, with advancing age, sometimes our ability to make decisions 
um, is impaired, perhaps the patient herself, even though in our culture we so much respect the patient's autonomy, the patient is sort of tinkering right there between ha really having the capacity to decide and not. So even though this person has lived a long time, you know, at the moment of crisis, he or she may really not be able to give a, a fully informed decision, and then matters get very complicated, as the caller has just told us, when there is nobody there who says, you know, this is my mom, and, you know, we know what she would have wanted, and who steps up and is both authorized and competent and caring to help um, decide this. So those situations can be enormously complex, and in a very short period of time, my answer would be and has been clinically when I've face these situations to try to very, very hard to bring somebody in from the patient's life who was a trusted figure, who understood how that person um, thought about other problems, how that person made decision, what she or he valued most, and then include members of um, the patient's professional life, maybe a geriatrician, a primary care physician, a psychiatrist, a social worker, somebody who might also have been able to uh, who may be able to provide a perspective based on what that person would have wanted for him or herself at a time when, when they had the ability to think. So a uh, quick answer is these kinds of decisions need a team and hopefully somebody who can really advocate for the patient and well-meaning, caring patient healthcare professionals who, who recognize that uh, the stakes are high and they may need to come up with something that would best conform to what that person would have wanted if he or she could really have spoken for himself. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Um, Palos, did you want to add to that? Just quickly add that this is a true dilemma for everyone involved, the team, the patient, and if there are any uh, family members or um, any members of a support system, it's also difficult at that point. But I think it really emphasizes something. It emphasizes the need to plan and document what some of those preferences will be ahead of time. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the hardest things for people to realize that, you know, um, when we do get to that point where it's a crisis, then everyone's like, I don't know, I don't care. And, but we heard him say, all of those, it's all hearsay. So it's very difficult to take care of a patient in the manner that we want to when we have so many unanswered questions. So, again, I think the last message with this one is just to, you know, plan and document ahead of time as much as you can. It's not something we always want to talk about or think about, but it really helps everyone in the long run. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Kelly, do you want to comment as well? <clears throat> yeah, just very, very briefly comment on it, because uh, Dr. Shapira and Dr. Palos really sort of brought this in. You know, you need a team and you want to plan and document. And I would also add in there, um, get in touch with a lawyer, um, bring legal services in. And I say that just in terms really of the planning and the documenting. Um, to do this ahead of time, of course, as Dr. Palos said, is ideal. You know, if everyone were to do this when we're healthy, it really makes things easier um, when we need care. But if that's not the case, if, um, you know, the family member or friend who maybe is long distance or if there really isn't anybody, um, then maybe the social worker or someone on the medical team can get them connected um, to legal services or if there's a medical legal partnership in place already, I mean, that's ideal. Then they can just be referred directly to that service. Um, but I do think that's an important piece of this, that um, it is in some ways a legal issue to have, to have that in place. Thank you. That's so important. And actually, we will be providing to everybody on the call resources to address all of these wonderful questions. I have to say this has been extraordinary. The speakers have been extraordinary. I want to thank all of our speakers. I also want to thank all of our participants for asking such really extraordinary questions that really are important to address in this new age that we live in. So thank you for all the questions. And for the last question, we will send information. Increasingly, we are seeing in the United States um, increasingly available pro bono legal services for people with cancer. And internationally, it may be in different in different places. And also, laws differ by state and by country. And so it is important to have that information available. And so both we appreciate the question that was asked. I hope we gave some help to the last caller, but also for all of you on the call to think about this. So I want to thank all of you for your participation on the call today. I did say that for those of you who still have questions that didn't get answered, 
it's a medical question, we ask you to call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or visit their website at www.cancer.gov. Um, it's a wonderful uh, website because it allows for a live chat feature where you can actually pose your question and they will address it. And for both our participants in the U.S. and internationally, they can also give you resources um, across the globe that you can access for any of your questions as well. For those of you who would like to access services from Cancer Care, um, we certainly recommend that you contact Cancer Care at our 1-800 number, um, 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, our website allows you to pose a question, an, uh, an email question to us, or pose a question on the website, and our social work staff will, of course, follow up with you for any of the emotional, social, practical issues that you may be coping with. As we conclude the call today, most importantly, we would not want anyone to feel that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of our community of support, with cancer care and that you can contact us at any time um, and that we also we have services ourselves to offer you and we also have resources to offer you um, in the community and at large within the world and I want to say this is part one of a five-part series so stay tuned there are uh, four other parts to this series and because we did talk about preventing um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting I just want to let you know that we do have a program on May 22nd um, it's Monday, same time zone, um, on this topic. So some of you may be interested in that as well. And you will get information about all these programs. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation on this extraordinary call today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.